0: The reading is taken from Matthew, chapter one, verses one to 17. Matthew, chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Good
1: morning, folks. That song was a great prayer with which to open the Bible, wasn't it? So it'd be great if you could grab a Bible and look back up to Matthew chapter 1. And as you do so, I suspect that some of you might be thinking, really? Are we going to do this? Are we really going to have a sermon on a list of 46 Hebrew names? I mean, Caroline read it really well, didn't she? But I wonder where you were about a third of the way through. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. I wonder if we should have carrots with the Sunday roast this week. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. But I don't think we've got anything for pudding, do we? not even anything in the freezer. Folks, this is the greatest story ever told and this is how it starts. (laughs) If it had been left to you or I, there's no way we'd have started the New Testament like this. It's hard to be gripped by a list of names. But I guess if you're really important, you don't have to work to catch people's attention. In fact, really famous folks are usually trying to avoid attention, aren't they? Like I heard the story of the queen who was once having tea at Sandringham when they ran out of cake. So as you do, if you're the queen, she put on her headscarf and she nipped down to the town, to the cake shop to get some more. And as she walked in, a lady stopped her and said, goodness me, you look really like the queen. To which her majesty is reported to have replied, oh, how very reassuring. (laughs) If you're really important, you don't need to catch people's attention, do you? which is why I quite often start these sermons with silly little stories like that, because I'm not that important. And so I'm worried that if I don't do something like that, uh, you might not listen to me. But the New Testament has no need for gimmicks such as that, because its subject matter is of earth-shattering importance. In fact, the very first readers of it, to them, this family tree would have been the only calling card Jesus needed they would have been gripped from the very first verse the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham because there that told them that here was what they had been waiting for at long last for so so long and this genealogy therefore shows us likewise firstly that jesus is the one you have been waiting for all your life whether you know it or not the first readers of this book certainly would have known the jewish people have been waiting all the way through the old testament for the messiah to appear god's savior king who is going to bless all nations and so it's no surprise that abraham and david are the two key names in this genealogy. They top it and tail it, do you see there? In verses one and 17. Because if you miss them, you miss everything. It'd be so easy to miss them and and get caught up in all the other details that are there. Not least the fact that this is not actually a bloodline. As in verse 16, Joseph, he isn't actually Jesus' dad, is he? And this is not exact history, as quite a few of the Israelite kings are missed out, so it's clearly selective. And actually in verse 17, <laughs> that pattern there is not exact, as there weren't actually 14 generations between God's people coming out of exile to the Christ appearing. No, this is not precise genealogy or history. It's not even precise mass. But it is precise theology. Jesus was from the line of Abraham and David. Now Abraham was the father of the Jewish race back in the book of Genesis. And God had promised Abraham there that through his descendants, all nations of the earth would be blessed. But read through the Bible up until this point and you will see that it is a story of the failure of God's people to be and bring good news to all the nations. But Jesus, in him, as this map shows, faith in God has gone out to pretty much everywhere. However narrow the start may have been from Abraham and during the Old Testament to a particular people, The scope is now global as the name of Jesus Christ has reached every nation on earth. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And Jesus is also the son of David. David, as you may well know, is thought to be the greatest of all Israelite kings. And to him came another promise, a promise that on his throne after his time, would come a king who would rule forever. And Jesus comes and establishes that eternal reign. So we don't just offer him to our friends and family members this Christmas as someone who would be interesting to consider. No, we offer him to them as their perfect divine ruler. He has come to rule all people. For all time. Like many other people this year, uh, we nipped out to the pet shop to buy a hamster. In fact, we bought two. Apparently sales in hamsters have gone through the roof this year. After all, uh, why wouldn't you? They're cute little critters and there's nothing much else to do, is there? But let's just say, like my family, you went down to pets at home and you picked out a little dwarf hamster or or a Syrian hamster and you went home thinking, oh, this is going to be such fun to have this sweet little fella scurrying around in our house to keep us entertained. And so you take him into the living room and put him in uh, a cage and you head into the kitchen to grab a drink. And when you come back, the cage has been ripped open And there, lying by the fire, is a full-sized lion. Folks, we can't think of Jesus as a cosy little (laughs) pet, Someone interesting to live with and fun to play with when we feel like it. And who might make life easier for us if things go wrong. I don't think hamsters ever really do that for you. But we often think of Jesus like that, don't we? Like he's there for our convenience. And when we're in desperate need, rather than that we were made to serve and worship him. And so we can't treat him like a pet, and we can't offer him to others like that either. Yes, Jesus comes to offer us life in all its fullness, blessing like no one else can give us. But Matthew is telling us here that Jesus has come to be our rightful King to rule all people for all time. And so, if you and I have a relationship in Jesus Christ today, then we have a relationship with the one who is the ruler of our mums and dads, of our brothers and sisters, of our children, of our neighbors, of our bosses, our work colleagues, our employees. Of our friends he has come to rule all people for all time that is God's purpose for verse 1 Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham and that includes you and me and every part of our life and it is in fact what we have been waiting for all of our lives so far for God to send his perfect divine king to come and rule over us. And so Matthew also wants us to know that this genealogy shows us that secondly, God's plan for you has not been derailed. Now while this genealogy is not overly concerned with precise historical detail, it does follow a historical pattern, which Matthew highlights there at the very end in verse 17. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we've got that pattern there of of three 14s. Now that might not get your juices flowing, but my wife, Fiona, used to be a math teacher and loves numbers, so I'm sure she's watering at the mouth at this. Uh, But we could chart this genealogies pattern like this. Starting from Abraham in verse two, David in verse six represented the high point in Israel's history. But it was downhill all the way from there to verse 11, the deportation to Babylon, which was its low point. And even though they returned to the land, things never really picked up from there. And in fact, even the most expert biblical scholar has little to no idea of half of who those names are in that final section of history there in verses 12 to 16. Which is why that period of history is represented by a flat line there. As God's plan seems to have fizzled out into obscurity, it just seems to have died a death. But in viewing the history of God's people like this, Matthew is showing us that we can that we that the history always had a pattern and a purpose to it. Always did. A purpose that was not derailed by any event. Now I don't know about you, but I wonder if you've ever stood on a hillside looking over the rolling. Hills in front of you, and you see a train line there, and you try to trace just where it weaves through the countryside. My wife will tell you, I'm such a geek, I love to do this kind of thing. We'll go up to the Lady of the North and be enjoying that magnificent land sculpture, and I'll suddenly just shout, Train! as I'll see it appear uh, beside uh, the, the lady there. Uh, and you can see it for a moment, and then it just disappears behind a hill. Or into some woods. But then, here it comes again. It's reappearing again. Hours of endless fun. Spotting where the train goes. But it's a bit like that with God's purpose in history. There are times when it seems to vanish into obscurity. Maybe behind a mountain of sin. Or because God just doesn't seem to be doing anything. But then we can trace it as the line appears again. And so we can know that the history of the human race upon this planet is not meaningless, despite all the apparent tragic absurdity of sin and grief and death and pain and suffering. There is a purpose. A purpose to come and rescue men and women for God. And so you and I can trace that in our own lives too, whether you're Christian or a non-Christian this morning, I invite you to look back at your life and to recognize that God is trying to reach you. I think that's why you're watching this at this moment and listening to me this morning. God is trying to get your attention. And so at this moment, the line has just reappeared again from behind a a hill of, of maybe many years or maybe even just this past week and its busyness before it disappears again, into the woods of this coming week. Christian or non-Christian, you can trace that line. God wants you and me in heaven and is working for that purpose. Which is why I think Matthew's genealogy of Jesus also shows us thirdly and finally that Jesus has come for everyone and can work through anyone as here we've got not just a roll call of the great and the good, but we've also got the bad and the seriously embarrassing. And we try to draw a discreet line over those we would call the black sheep of our families as human beings, don't we? Head of, uh, through a fellow minister that I know of a member of his congregation who commissioned a family history to be done for his family, only to discover that one of his ancestors had been executed by electric chair. His entry in the family history eventually read like this. He worked for the Department of Justice for a number of years, after which he was given a chair in applied electronics at a well-known government institution. He became quite attached to it and eventually died in situ his death came as quite a shock. (laughs) Folks, we try and airbrush our family histories, even our own histories, in order to make them more presentable. And it was no different in Jesus's day also. And yet here, the lineage of Jesus includes bad men in whom there seemed to be no redeeming feature at all, like Rehoboam or Abijah, or even terrible old King Ahaz and some incredibly highly embarrassing women also. There are five women mentioned in this genealogy, and you and I in modern times might think the only embarrassing thing about that is that there aren't more women included here. But back then in that culture, in a patriarchal society, even for there to be one was seriously unusual. And what women they were! Not only are the first four of them mentioned, not Jewish, Tamar in verse three, Rahab and Ruth in verse five, Bathsheba, not referred to by name, but there in verse six as the wife of Uriah. These women were Canaanites or Moabites or, or Hittites. It would be shocking for them to be, be included as non-Jewish ancestors of Jesus. The biggest shock of all where all four of them were involved in some kind of marital irregularity. One of them had been a prostitute. Another pretended to be one in order to seduce her father-in-law into incest. And another one of them was seduced into adultery by no one less than Israel's greatest king, David himself. And her unfaithfulness led to the murder of her husband. Do you see? Here in these women we have moral, racial and even gender outsiders in their culture. The Jewish law excluded all four of them from the presence of God and yet here they are, front and centre, in Jesus' calling card. Why? as a comfort and as a challenge. Here's the comfort. This genealogy says to us, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell itself. I don't care what deep, dark, hidden secrets are in your past. I don't care how you've even blown it this very last week. If you come to God through Jesus, then he will accept you and work in your life. In fact, he delights to work through people like you. After all, he has been doing it for all of history. Despite their checkered past, all four of these women went on to demonstrate faith in God and were blessed by him. And so they were the spiritual ancestors of Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. These women earlier on in the, in the genealogy, they prepare us for Jesus' birth to an unmarried woman from an obscure, humble background. God wants to reach everyone and he can work through anyone. Now here's the challenge. This genealogy shocks religious people. It might not shock you or me, but the first readers would have been deeply unsettled by the names of Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab being included here. And I wonder, would it shock you if I was to tell you that in the congregation here at St. Joseph's we had a prostitute or a murderer. How would you feel about them belonging to your midweek group? How would you feel in more normal times, them coming around every week to drink your tea and eat your cake and study the Bible and pray with you? It's a bit of a test reading this genealogy when you really dig down into it and try and work through the implications, isn't it? I mean, how much do we really believe that the gospel is for everyone and that God can use anyone? And how much are we willing for God to use us to welcome everyone? Everyone. Folks, if you get nothing else from this genealogy this morning, get this. It tells us that if Jesus' family tree can include this bunch of motley social and moral outcasts, then so should our church, and therefore also, by God's grace, so should we. So why don't I pray that through for us now. Let's pray. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as his children. Our Father God, we thank you that at the very appropriate moment, the right time, you sent your son Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, born under the law to rescue those of us condemned by it because of our sin, so that we might become your children and be used by you to reach others. Thank you for that wonderful truth. And please help us to know it <laughs> and understand it better than we've ever done before this Christmas time. For Jesus' sake. Amen.